0: Die. Hello, hello and welcome back to All Plotted Out a My Little Pony Friendship is Magic podcast. My name is Pornheart. That's P A W N Heart. I thank you very much. Yeah, a bit of a nightmare at meetups that one. Thanks Celestia for name badges. And I'm very excited to say we have finally reached the end of season 6. So this episode I'm going to be covering the finale to Where and Back Again parts 1 and 2. So in this bumper episode, I'll both be looking at the finale and having a sort of overview awards show for season six, as well as having a little bit of a look forward to season seven. So without further ado, to where and... B- I'm not going to miss this. What's in the bag? Oh, oh, it's an email, because that's how it works. It's from a... Kurt unsolicited at probably right though.com and it reads, Dear Mr. Hart, for I am part of that great wrestling dynasty. That is very much a joke. <clears throat> anyway, Dear Mr. Hart, after having dipped my toe into the proverbial waters of your podcast with the last episode featuring your review of Violet Pony's Super Pony World Fairy Tales, imagine my horror when I went back to previous instalments of your show, only to find them not filled with interminable music commentary, but instead be about the show My Little Pony Friendship is Magic. This is not what I signed up for. More tedious, borderline irrelevant filler content, please. Yours with profound, dry ambivalence, Kurt. Yeah, without masses of feedback, I grant it's quite difficult for me to know what parts land and what parts don't whether in fact this is all an exercise in unremitting tedium for the listeners i will continue doing it regardless but it would be nice to know if some of the filler content was welcome or whether you'd rather i just underran the half an hour mark from time to time so yeah um do you think the filler content works would you rather not have it at all Makes my job easier. Or are there certain areas you would rather I covered in filler content? So I'll be frank, doing like three episodes a pop every week, going over them, writing notes, recording and editing for each of them, and finding a reason to insert an older episode. That is a bit much for my schedule, I'll be quite honest, so I won't be able to do a retro episode spotlight each time. But if there are any other ideas, please let me know. Details are in the description, and at the end of the show. But anyway, back to the finale. Both parts were written by Josh Haber and Michael Vogel, and both parts were first aired on October the 22nd, 2016. Both parts also have an 8.3 rating on IMDb, And the synopsis for part one reads, Starlight Glimmer goes back to the old town to join the Sunset Festival. But when she returns home, she finds out her friends and the princesses were replaced by changelings. Trixie, Discord and Thorax join her on a mission to rescue them. Now, Josh Haber and Michael Vogel might need little introduction at this point. Josh Haber has been the script editor for this season. He's written some fantastic episodes, uh, not least the opening to part of The Crystalling. And Michael Vogel has also pitched in with some strong stuff too. Though I was slightly underwhelmed by his last Starlight-centric episode, Every Little Thing She Does, from a couple of podcasts back. Now there's a problem with this episode, or this pair of episodes, for I shall be dealing with them as a pair. And that is that they're so consistently entertaining and smoothly realised that I don't have masses to discuss. There's not a huge bugbear to get over. It's a fantastic idea. Effectively, it's a group of secondary characters, but beyond that, a group of outcast characters, banding together with most of their abilities drained by the effects of the changeling hive and trying to save Equestria. The character writing is great. The pacing is excellent. It's very funny, and it proves how far the show can go out of its initial wheelhouse of characters and scenarios and still be as high quality as ever. In fact, it might just be my favourite two-parter of the entire show run. Now, don't quote me on that. We've got more two-parters to come. Five, in fact. And I have a feeling that there is one that might up some pretty stiff and frightening competition to this. But everything that I love about the later seasons of the show is here. In fact, it almost retroactively creates a more balanced uniform identity for season six than actually is present. Coming into the series, and I've mentioned this multiple times, I was sure that the, uh, the sort of the starlight and starlight and Trixie relationship was like central. ...to this season. It hasn't been, really. Uh, She's popped in and out, Starlight, but a lot of the weight has hinged around the season premiere, no second prances, and this, and I think I'd filled in the gaps myself. That's not to say it's not been a great season with fantastic character work for for other characters, but it just wasn't as (laughs) smoothly Starlight development-centric as I initially assumed... Again, like no second prances, much is made of the Twilight-Starlight-Trixie triumvirate. And what is great is that the relationships can grow between the characters, while not all of them necessarily like each other. Specifically, Trixie and Twilight still really don't get along very well. They just kind of pretend to. Or more specifically, Twilight lets herself get baited by Trixie who still gets a perverse thrill out of getting one over on Twilight at every opportunity. Now, this isn't as much of a centre point as No Second Prances, nor should it be. The real central relationship here is Trixie and Starlight. Again, Trixie proves why she's a valuable friend, while still having all of the sharp edges and annoyances that have always been present in her character. However here, robbed of her magical abilities, she is forced to concede that her friend should be the leader of the group. Starlight's leadership, her unwilling taking on of the mantle of leader, is the main arc. She is afraid of taking control, especially when foist back into the environment where previously she'd been such a a tyrant at the beginning of the episode, is entirely understandable. She is afraid that she hasn't changed that much, and that if she were given the power once again, she would abuse it. This is a natural, mature concern, especially from someone who is still feeling their way into the world of other ponies, into equal relationships with others. And I think for her character development, she has to be forced into the leadership role in order for this episode to make sense. Because it allows her both to prove that she is a good leader without the, the conceit and arrogance that would come with seeking it out. Like any good leader, they don't seek it out. They just fall into place because it's the only option at the time. The two episodes, while well, they do end on a, a definite pivot point... With the oddball group of anti-heroes facing up to the Changeling Hive we've heard about before, but not seen previously. Flow as a single unit very well. And I'm more aware here than I have been in previous two-parters of how much having two parts can benefit pacing. This is a story that really takes its time, and all the better for it. Motifs are re-explored. Starlight Glimmer, either in reality or the dream world, revisits her old town four times during the course of this two-parter with different results. First of all, it's in a nightmare where she assumes that she will be cast out. The second where she finds herself completely overwhelmed by people wanting her to help them or provide leadership or guidance again. And uh, she freaks out and, and causes an explosion. Always rushing to magic with Starlight. The third allows her to reflect on the rather confusing and iffy conversations she'd had with the main six earlier on, while also allowing Luna and Inroads to explain what has happened. And finally, at the end, we have the illustration of the lessons learned when she returns in the real world to reluctantly accept the mantle given to her by others. She's like Jon Snow, if Jon Snow also used to be Cersei. That's a Pokemon reference if you didn't get it. There are a lot of themes in this episode. In fact, it seems to build more on. One of the few criticisms I can level at the two-parter is that they're trying to combine too many lessons and, and layers into the conclusion. So some of them just pop up out of nowhere. Vogel and Haber rarely overwrite. They rarely feel the need to explain things that are implicit. Now, you could argue either way when you're dealing with a child audience, but in general, I don't think there's any harm in implying rather than explaining or illustrating rather than talking about. Like There's a lovely comment the first time Starlight encounters Luna in her dream, where Luna says, I see a lot of myself in you, Starlight, Lima," And it simply draws to attention the fact that, yes, they are both redeemed ponies who have found a place, or are finding their place, in Starlight's case. But anyway, yeah, back to my my intended point. They don't often over-explain, but there is a little bit of clunkiness towards the end when a new theme is introduced right in the last battle. It's almost like they forgot to put it in earlier on. Where, amongst the very apt parallels between Chrysalis's current actions and Starlight's past actions when she ruled the village, Queen Chrysalis just suddenly says, And everyone will do what I say. Which seems a little bit abrupt and on the nose at the time, and is basically just so Starlight can directly rebuff it by saying, No, individual voices are important, like Thorax over here. And they really are trying to wring as much symmetry as possible out of the uh, chrysalis and uh, starlight confrontation. Now, most of the time it works uh, as, a, as a kind of surprisingly subtle character study for a, for a show of this type. But they're almost trying to be too neat with the points of comparison at the end. Where well, they perhaps should have kept it a little bit simpler... It's like they're trying to address every single possible issue with the way Starlight used to rule the village directly through the encounter with Chrysalis, point by point. And it's a little bit much, but I really do admire what they were trying to do character-wise, and it does broadly make sense. And it's also pleasing that after all of this, after this sort of rather densely thematically packed final battle, the ending doesn't feel rushed either. It's also nice that it's not all neat and tidy. Starlight, through her own journey, and along with her misfit mates, really does accomplish something amazing. But she fails to convert the big bad, and Chrysalis gets away. Which I think was a wise decision. Both in terms of not sterilising the end of the episode to an unnatural, neat conclusion. But also it means that she can come back. And she will be back. (laughs) Reminding me somewhat of the cutie remark from the end of last season, there really is an escalating sense of threat here. A lot of the conveniences that might emerge through comparable two-parters are kind of stripped away here. Not least because they find that it's not just their inability to work with each other that they're fighting, ...is the fact that their individual abilities have by and large been removed... ...with the useful exception of Thorax. So it just adds another layer of difficulty... ...and it feels like a real struggle to get to the throne room. So when they finally reach it after an episode's trek at the end of part two... ...there's something to be said about Starlight desperately just hammering away at this massive throne with a rock trying to fulfill the mission even though they just do not have the technical ability to accomplish it lots of cool individual business in the changeling hive thorax again quite charming he's quite reserved he doesn't often feel like he's listened to as much as he should be i think he's used to being the outsider but his shape-changing abilities are invaluable as you might expect it is through him that they are allowed to enter the throne room, after all, and create the distraction needed. Little bit of a contrivance that Queen Chrysalis can tell its thorax by his eyes gleaming for no apparent reason. Is that, is that a thing? Is that a tell that we've seen in the past? Anyways, a, a, a minor nitpick. It could just as easily have been deduced through Chrysalis's intuition. She's she's the mother of the hive, effectively. She would probably know. A lot is made of Discord's by now irrevocable a connection to Fluttershy. He is obsessed with finding her. And the trap he is drawn into is quite believable. He's sort of stunted into inaction. And then of course there's Trixie. who it's just nice to see her putting herself out there for others, using her remaining smoke bombs to create a diversion, and allowing herself to get chased and caught and my goodness, if the scene of her effectively being swarmed by changelings with her weedy ta is one of the funniest scenes in the history of the show, I don't know what is. So in the end, it's Thorax and Starlight versus Queen Chrysalis and the entire hive and no magic. What is interesting about what could have been a very trite and convenient fix to the situation, is that where on its basis level what happens is that Thorax saves the hive through love, it's the manner he shares it that is more important than what it is, because the changelings are fundamentally, at the risk of, of, of unduly darkening this, addicts. And they are used to being outcast and they're used to having to steal what they need from others. So they get these little snatches of acquisition and they take unwillingly. They're scavengers and they're used to being feared and expect to be feared. And it's a vicious circle in that way. And there's a really cool line delivered by Starlight in the final encounter with Chrysalis where she reframes this. You don't have to live lives starving all the time because as it transpires Thorax hasn't needed to openly feed in a predatory manner off other ponies since he made friends. As it turns out the sharing of love through friendship through actual relationships with other creatures actually fills the need without the need for theft. So when she asks Thorax who is now prone to and on the verge of, of, of total defeat, to actually just give all of the love he has accrued to Chrysalis without any reservation, just an open giving. It effectively breaks the changeling's traditional relationship with their food source, and he transforms. Really superficial point here. Yeah, there's a bit here that I find a little odd for two reasons. First of all, Thorax transforms, that's fine, that's been hinted at, the idea that they can actually turn into other creatures because of the the different relationship they have. But my first issue is that Starlight just points at Thorax's physical transformation and says, this is what can happen if you openly give love. It's like, is is it a good thing that's happened to him? Is it a bad thing? It's not explained to anyone at that point. I mean, I think it's supposed to be implicit that this is a step up, that he's sort of transcended this need, but it's not explained. And so a lot of the other changelings just start openly giving their love, and they're not really given a reason to. And the second point, and this is really superficial, it's an example of the trope I've mentioned before of assumed beauty. We are told something is desirable, therefore it is desirable, even if we don't see it as such. It is particularly prevalent in animated media. Rarity is beautiful because we are told she is beautiful. And here, Thorax is turned into a sort of garish collection of marzipan fruits. And we're supposed to believe this is intrinsically desirable. Who wouldn't want this? I do like... That each of them shows a degree of individuality now that they didn't before. They all have slightly different sizes and colour schemes. I do think they're all kind of ugly in their new form. I mean, while the traditional one was hardly conventionally pretty, the, the, the changelings did look cool. And these, it's just like, oh, we're all sort of random pastel colours now. Isn't that... Understood to be attractive. Yeah, that's just a long standing issue with the way they are depicted. I don't like the look of the reformed changelings, but the idea behind it does make sense. I do really like Thorax. I also like Queen Chrysalis as a villain, so this scenario works well for both of them, I think. It also does give Thorax a bit of stature. Uh, Maybe that's what Starlight was referring to. I don't know nitpicking, sundry observations, if it wasn't already clear from No Second Prances, it should be clear by this point, just in the way they're animated and work off each other through dialogue, the showmakers seem to have fallen in love with the uh, Trixie and Starlight pairing, any of the scenes with the two of them around Trixie's carriage are great, and the expressiveness of the animation just takes a little step up here. I I love (laughs) Trixie freaking out in her silence bubble. It's just a nice feature as well in this one that, as one might expect for all her bravado, Trixie is a bit of a scaredy pony. But she overcomes it because she realises there is no choice. It's a duo that would go on to make a number of really, really strong episodes going forward. Interesting parallel... Uh, especially given that this is a season that's really treated Spike well. That even amongst the changelings pretending to be the main six and Spike, Spike is just used as like a like a plaything. He's just bullied horribly. Just <laughs> somehow the effect of being Spike crosses species and means that you are a pincushion. And Spike has literally been a pincushion in the past, as we know. This is a really tightly written episode with some very snappy dialogue on the whole. But there is one little scene at the end of part one where the disconnect between the script and what's being shown on the screen is illustrated a little. Chrysalis appears on this big magical view screen in the middle of Twilight's throne room and talks to the other changelings who have been masquerading as the main six she sees them change back from ponies into changelings they're the only people in there they are in the throne room of the castle she asks them to report and and they say we have replaced the main six and spike and have taken over the throne room well duh but she seems really pleased to hear this news Maybe the hive's very dark and she finds it too bright to see what's going on in the throne room. Yes, would have been a bit awkward if she'd just beamed into the throne room had they not achieved their mission. But anyway, a great introduction to the inner sanctum of the changeling hive as well. I do like the changing landscape of the hive with all the holes and, and things like that. But when Thorax disguised as Starlight just steps into the main throne room and the goo sort of drips on his head and looks up and sees the sort of stirring, captured ponies and others hanging from the hanging from the ceiling in their cocoons and then perhaps echoing a bit of a Borg Queen appearance in First Contact. Another Star Trek reference there. Hope you enjoy them. Queen Chrysalis sort of comes from between two of the cocoons and sort of cracks her body into place. It's nicely creepy. It's really cool. And Starlight trying to outrun her and hide from her in the throne room it just makes really good use of the location bit of an aliens vibe here remember with newt creeping through the vents and the queen grabbing at her just be honest with them i'm sure they'll understand where you're coming from what a strong ending to the season really absolutely love this two-parter most of my complaints are sort of nitpicks And while these do perhaps add up enough to like a half-mark demerit, it's still, I'll be honest, going to be the highest-rated episode we've covered so far. Because I'm giving this a 9.5. I remember loving it when it came out. I remember loving it even more when I re-watched it. I just wasn't expecting it to be as good as it was. Really well-paced, thoughtful, well-acted. Great character interplay. And again, it's a real illustration of what can be tweaked and changed in the show. What other characters can be used without affecting the spirit or charm of the show whatsoever. Right. Well, season six appears to be done. I can't actually believe it. It's only felt like five seconds since I sat down here. Um. Yeah, well, I hope you've enjoyed the ride with me so far. Obviously, it's not over yet, but I'm just going to take uh, a few minutes now to look over the the season, give out some completely subjective and uh, superfluous awards, and uh, look forward to season seven with some of my expectations, having not seen it in a while. I know some podcasts like to do sort of season roundups as a separate episode, but to be quite honest, I... uh, I I, I tend to lose interest after about 10 or so minutes of those, so I'm just going to append it here to the end and hopefully I won't talk your ear off for too long, which I am entirely capable of. You may already have noticed. However, I'm also an extensive editor. I've been through, tallied up all of the scores I gave for every episode this season. And it averages out to 7.5, which for a 26-episode season is really good. It did have its down points, of course. We might cover a couple of them in a minute. But on the whole, it feels very strong. I don't know that it was quite con- as consistent in sort of tone and trajectory as I remembered. Uh, I've mentioned it before, even this episode, that I remembered there being a far more pronounced and consistent arc for Starlight this season which isn't quite true she's not actually in the middle part of the season much at all and there are a couple of episodes that feel like sort of sidesteps or feels like another writer's take on the same character though it does feel like by the end of the series there's a pretty good idea of what that what the character is and and, and what they're what they're going to be doing with her going forward because she is going to be a, a significant character I'm I'm going to hesitate to say more significant because, as I might well be proven wrong, as I was this season. But it's strange, like in my recollection. I think of uh, really broadly seasons one to five. That's the main six. Uh, seasons six onwards, they're the Starlight seasons. Huge oversimplification, of course. So we might discuss some of the uh, the cons and and more pronouncedly the pros of the season. Uh, in a little more detail now with a series of awards starting with best new character (coughs) now there are a number of new additions Uh, a lot of them sort of one episode only dealies like the restaurant owners in Spice Up Your Life for instance but there are a few that do really stick out Uh, my runners-up are Thorax, probably the most important of the new characters uh, as the episodes pan out, closely matched by Sunburst, who had a fantastic introduction in the Crystalling, but was kind of underutilised in his next appearance, just didn't even really need to be there. Princess Ember of the Dragon Kingdom, only in one episode, but a fantastic character with a lot of opportunity, for development and interaction with the equestrian characters. But number one, she may only have been in one episode, but I, I do love her so. It's Gabby the Griffin from The Fault in Our Cutie Marks. Just because she's so charming as a character, so optimistic and positive without being trite, as I mentioned, as fundamentally likeable. And her relationship with the, the CMCs is a very interesting one. And she will be back. Postscript. You wally. Where on earth is Quibble Pants? And the answer is joint first with Gabby, as it should be. Because while I like the character of Gabby a little more, Patton Oswald's performance... Cannot be denied. So, eh, joint first. Sorry about that. Very shortly, back in the original recorded show, you'll see past me having exactly the same epiphany. So, (laughs) that's something to look forward to. Best recurring character. Now, obviously, this can take in characters that have been in previous seasons, but it's effectively the one that I felt was treated best by... This season as a whole. Now this is a bit of a surprise coming in. I would have assumed until this last rewatch it would have been perhaps Starlight, perhaps even Trixie. Discord certainly has a good showing whenever he shows up. But no, the character consistently treated the best, if rarely ever given the spotlight, is Spike. Spike has been redeemed by this season because I think the showrunners knew that he wasn't getting his due. Far too good a character, and far too good a voice performance to have been relegated to a, an eternal comic foil role, as he had been by season five. He's a necessary, essential voice in the main cast, and regardless of the overall quality of the episodes it was in, he, he seemed to be really, solidly, uh, convincingly written throughout. Great job there, Spikey. Brings us to Frank's flag, which is, uh, yeah, it's just unfortunate. Right. Because we've got to put a negative one in for balance. I'm convinced it's good for the soul. I'm not sure whose soul, probably not mine, but... Least favourite episode of the season. Worst sounds. So harsh. Uh, runners-up. And I'm going to start here from the kind of the, the least offensive, which I think illustrates just how good this season has been because there's only 5 on this list that I've considered to be remotely lacking episodes and the first one um is football season which isn't bad at all really it's just meh it's just fine it's one of those could be exchanged with any other episode in any other season particularly an early one kind of episodes it's just it does its thing it's perfectly entertaining And it just adds very little, and then it goes. Things start to become a little more troublesome with Newbie Dash, which is an episode that has really good moments and some things to really enjoy. But it's a bit of a mess. The message isn't quite clear, and the way it is wrapped up at the end does not help clarify things. What's more, it feels a touch repetitious in terms of what's actually being imparted here and what happens to Rainbow. But again, I don't, I don't think it's bad. It's very flawed, though. <laughs> yeah, and then there's three, um, which I, I genuinely think are not very good. Um, Twenty-eight pranks later, uh, it's sort of rule of funny stuff. It's a, it's a very thin premise. And um, it's quite repetitive. Uh, Yeah, it's just not very good. (laughs) Cart Before the Ponies. Um, It's real boilerplate kids telly stuff that takes some really cheapening liberties with the characters. It's even more remarkable (laughs) considering it's by Ed Valentine. And when we consider his contributions to the show, it is bookended by two brilliant episodes... Flight to the Finish, and the Fault in Acuity marks. So what was happening here, I don't know. But it is far and away Ed Valentine's worst script for the show, as in it's not even close. It just feels like a lazy-spec script, possibly written for something else that was refitted for the show. I might be wrong, but that's what it feels like. Speaking of lazy and refitted... My number one really might not be considered particularly bad by a lot of people, but I just think it's completely hollow. It is just a storyline through which characters navigate without development. Could have been in Scooby-Doo, could have been in any kids' show, really. Again, takes some liberties with the characters. Doesn't do anything interesting with any of them. It's Viva Las Pegasus. So now that's over with. Best episode. And there were more high-echelon episodes here than there were lower-tier ones, to be sure. And Ed Valentine appears in this one, so... All is forgiven, sir. Putting these in order is tricky. Really tricky, so I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to put them in broadcast order, the runners-up. No second prances, I've talked about this a lot. It's a fantastic character-based episode. It lays the table... For, well, forgive the pun, for the character dynamics going forward in the show. Uh, Trixie's reappearance is managed fantastically, much better, I feel, than it was in Magic Jewel. Uh, it's a great character episode, great development for Starlight and smashing. Love it. Also, by the same author, Saddle Row Review. The most perhaps out and out comedy episode of the season. And it succeeds throughout. It's really funny. It's memorably framed. Um, Yeah. A joy. Stranger Than Fan Fiction. The other comedy episode. That just has a little bit. Perhaps a little bit more to say. Than Saddle Row Review. Um, Amazing guest performance. By Patton Oswalt. Great new character. Who I think I missed. From my best new character list. Oh my goodness! But yeah, great episode. Entertaining, witty, nice little bit of satire. Nick loan again with dungeons and discords. Another great character piece. He likes to pare them down to smaller units and really provide you know effective character interactions in a smaller group. Lots of imagination in this one. Discord and Spike both have you know peak performances and, and depictions. Uh Yeah, smashing, fun, and just good character interactions. Ed Valentine's fault in our Cutie Marks. A really nicely, mature, intelligently crafted episode of Cutie Mark Crusader hijinks with the introduction of fantastic new character, Gabby, who I might have mentioned. Um, yeah, great stuff, but number one. Uh, I've already given this away, this very episode. It's the finale. To wear and back again is a brilliant two-parter. It combines a lot of the strengths of episodes like um, No Second Prances and The Times They Are a Changeling. And kind of turns it into this grand adventure. And it really is a strong statement of the show's thesis uh, of combining character-based comedy, adventure and danger and relatable, valuable lessons about interpersonal relationships and making the most of relationships with others. And um, it's a very ambitious episode, perhaps almost to a fault at the end, but it's superbly entertaining. Everyone's on top form. It's such a good idea having an adventure based around the secondary cast. And it's just, it really shines a light on, on on what the show can accomplish going forward. And it might well be my favourite two-part of the show. It's brilliant. And yeah, just a nod to Best Writer. I don't really need to go into too much detail here because you might be able to guess. While he didn't have a hand in the finale, he wrote... Three episodes this season, and all three of them were included in my best episodes list there. Uh, Nick Confalone, the writer of No Second Prance's Subtle Row Review in Dungeons & Discords, he's, he just knocks it out the park every time this season. And he proves he's equally adept at writing really funny episodes, as he is just really kind of dramatic character-based ones. He's just an excellent writer. Not that there haven't been many others. It's not over yet. So, yeah. Season 7. What's that about? What am I expecting from that? And what do I know about it going in? I'm looking forward to Season 7, ironically, because I know it has issues. <laughs> um, The first half to two-thirds of the season uh, is the the only section of the last four seasons of the show that aren't overseen as script editor by Josh Haber. It is handed over from the start of Season 7 to Joanne Lewis and Christine Sonko, who uh, just fairly impressed me with Top Bolt, and have done previously very strong episodes. Josh Haber joins in for the closing parts of Season 7, and then 8 and 9 are overseen by Josh Haber in combination with others. Now, as I've implied before, I don't actually know the remit or the full remit of a lot of these roles on the show. Uh, my knowledge of script editor, my frequent conflation of that with showrunner purely comes from my knowledge of, of, of shows like Doctor Who and things where that seems to be the case. The, show, the script editor is the showrunner. I don't know if that's true here whether they have a slightly lesser role in sculpting the tone and feel of a season. But I don't know if it's a coincidence that the first half to two-thirds of season seven are amongst the most, in my recollection at least, erratic in tone and quality of the final few seasons of the show. Um, As I recall, though, it is very much one of extremes because I know full well there are some episodes in season seven ...that are amongst my favourites of the show. There is one that um, is strongly in contention for being my favourite. Don't know. I I, I don't want to build it up too much. I have a feeling it'll be pretty close, though. But also, in my recollection and looking down the episode list... ...there are some episodes in Season 7 that are, I feel, quite substandard. And it feels that unlike even some of the poorer episodes in Season 6... Not all that much effort has been taken on some of these lesser quality scripts to make them fit in with the overall feel uh, and approach of the show. Again, this is purely on recollection and I'm just looking forward to seeing uh, to what extent I was correct about some of these episodes and to what extent I I was actually overreacting. I hope I was overreacting because there's a lot to love about season seven, but it's the dark horse of the last Four seasons, if you'll forgive their pun. Got any problems, troubles, conundrums, or any other sort of issues, major or minor, that I, as a good friend, could help you solve? Yeah, so season seven is there. There to be scrutinized. (laughs) So yeah, I hope you'll join me, because I'm not quite sure actually what to expect. But thank you, anyway, for joining me so far on my journey. If you want to get in touch, as always, Uh, about anything show-related, you can contact us at uh, at outlook.com. That's all one word, all lowercase, outlook.com, Or reach us on the Facebook page at All Plotted Out. But until Season 7, stay well, stay safe, stay tolerant. And while giving your love is important, don't do it to such an extent that you turn into a marzipan fruit creature if at all possible. If you take nothing else from this season, make it that. Maybe the later books are slightly more realistic than I gave them credit for.